University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, here's a fun fact. It is 363 more days until Christmas. I know, right? The first few days after Christmas always seem like a drag. The gifts have been given. The tree has shed like a dog. The questionable gifts have probably been returned. The decorations are glaring at you, begging the question, will you leave me up for a few more days or maybe a few more months? Just think. Christmas is 363 days away. But the good news is when it comes to the gospel narrative, Christmas isn't finished yet. We still have some of the Christmas narrative to work through. So take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. We've encountered the girl named Mary, her fiancé Joseph. We've even met baby Jesus. The angels herald his birth to the shepherds, but there seems to be a group missing. Who is it? Ah, yes, we three kings of Orient are. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 reads, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the king time of King Herod. Now, we can't glaze over that name without stopping to unpack it just a bit. Uh, king Herod was one of the most corrupt tyrants in history. Uh, Given power over Judea by the Romans, Herod sought to rid the country of any competing powers. In fact, he had the entire royal family put to death, including his wife and two sons that she bore him. Herod taxed the people on top of what the Romans taxed. He built extravagant buildings for himself and yet sought to gain favor from the people by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem that that was destroyed during the Babylonian captivity. And Matthew wants us to understand that this was a specific time in history, not just some figment of his imagination. This was the time of Herod. This was a time of tyranny. And yet, it is in this time that God is going to change the course of human history. But before we jump into the text any further, we need to point out a common misconception about the wise men narrative. Verse 1 tells us that after Jesus was born... Meaning, the narrative takes place in a different time frame from the birth narrative. Jesus' birth happened in the past. Additionally, later in verse 10, it will tell us that soon to be discovered, the travelers saw a child. The Greek word used here is not infant, but it's a word used to describe a toddler. So, not to break your Christmas bubble, but the wise men were not at the stable that night. They didn't join the throngs of angels and shepherds and that awkward goat named Steve. They weren't there. Honestly, our conception of the wise men being at the stable really comes from the songs we like to sing at Christmas or uh, the manger or nativity scenes that we like to buy. So theologically speaking, you should put the wise men a proportional distance away from the rest of the manger. So we read this, what happens next. Herod is this awful person, yet we learn that these wise men are coming. Look back at verse 1. After after Jesus was, uh, was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, 
and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are by no means the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so I may too go and worship him. Magi from the east isn't exactly very uh, precise location. So this could have been Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Sheba, modern-day Yemen, Persia, India, as far east as China. Thanks, Matthew, for the extraordinary details of telling us where these people came from. Magi is a, is a unique word, too, uh, that's attributed to these men. The Greek word magi can be translated a couple ways. Wise men, priest, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreter of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, and sorcerers. Yes, sorcerers. I know what you're thinking, like Albus, Percival, Wolfric, Brian, Dumbledore, Order of Merlin, first class, the headmaster of Hogwarts, if only. As the great headmaster once put it, happiness can be found in the darkest of times only if you remember to turn on the light. The translation of the word gives us a broader indication of who these men were. They could have been kings, because the Persian Empire often referred to nobility as kings under the emperor. They could have been astrologers, because they clearly saw the results of this star in the sky. They could have been priests of Zoroastrianism, finding their religious roots in the Far East and fixated on astrology. Their gifts, which we'll get to shortly, indicate that they could have been from a different country, bringing gifts as emissaries from their kingdoms. Did you indicate that there's no indication of uh, the number of magi. It's assumed that there was three based on the number of gifts that are presented, but you know there could have been like a freeloader wise man that forgot to bring his gifts to, to baby Jesus, and so there could have been any number of magi that were there. And did you notice that the precise triggering of Jerusalem, Matthew states that the king Herod heard of their arrival and was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. In other words, News about the travelers spread throughout Jerusalem like wildfire. Something was happening, something unique with this star in the sky. Who were these strange men from the east, and why is Herod so upset by all of this? The Magi have come through Jerusalem in search of something, as they even indicate this to Herod, that they are searching for a fixed point in the sky. And we know that really they're looking for something much more life-giving. Herod is searching for meaning in all of this. For he calls together all the religious leaders to bring understanding from the Hebrew scriptures. And they give him a glimpse into the ancient prophets that foretold of Bethlehem and the great Messiah to be born. All the characters in the story are searching for something. For wisdom, for truth, for meaning. And for as long as humankind has used that little noodle in our cranium, we are creatures that have been searching for something beyond us. We, too, are a people who search for wisdom, truth, and meaning. 
for the search of, of wisdom, truth, and meaning, it, it's a great river of life. And we just don't realize that, that each tributary and stream we navigate, we are part of this same great river. It's a river that leads us to the ultimate truth and meaning. That is to say that you and I are beloved creations of an eternal creator. And each of us equipped within us has distinctness and creativity and giftedness and passions and temperaments and, and dreams. And while we seek truth and meaning down this great river, we never recognize it as the same. Though we might seek diverse outlets in the work of our hands or procreation of a family or life companions, the great wilderness or philosophy or theology, these are just mere branches of the same great river. Our forebears, these magi from the east, saw a star and came in search of meaning. So may we consider this morning what we are searching for right now. Verse 9 says, that after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw a child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another way. Baby showers are, are funny parties, if you've ever been to one. You have a, a woman that's deep into her pregnancy with all the swollen ankles and the gastro discomfort to boot, and yet she is a glow of anticipation of joy, this new life that's been kicking inside her for eight months. And you have the other ladies that get excited about every cute little onesie that's opened up. I mean, I'll, I'll give it credit Little tiny baby clothes are absolutely adorable. And then you have the guys that got dragged to the baby shower with that look on their face that's saying, you know what, why do baby showers always happen on Saturdays and Sundays? Don't you know there's football on TV? I mean, I would rather go see the Jets versus the Chargers right now than be sitting in this party. So we get a glimpse into this baby shower with Jesus. Well, it's, it's more of a toddler shower, I guess. And again, the Greek word used here is paidon, which means young child or more advanced child. And the gifts they bring are, are well known throughout the world. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And traditionally, the explanation of these gifts goes something like this. Gold is a gift of royalty, acknowledging that Jesus was from the royal line. Frankincense, an expensive incense that was... Uh, burned in the temple in Jerusalem, signifies Jesus' divinity, and myrrh, an expensive oil used for perfume, which is foreshadowing Jesus' death. And according to this explanation, myrrh was most commonly used by wealthy Jews in anointing oil for the dead. It's a real symbolism in this last gift, and I'm pretty sure that if this is what this gift was intended for, you probably would have heard or read a comment from Mary about how ridiculous it is that somebody would give her a gift for her child's burial. I mean, that's going to be a disturbed individual to give that kind of gift. Biblical scholars have recently argued that, that actually myrrh uh, was used in the ancient Near East as a way to, um, uh, as a medicine that gives to other people. And so it's more likely that this gift presented could have quite possibly actually been for Mary, who had just given birth in a stable without a midwife or help. 
Frankincense and myrrh have been used for medical purposes for thousands of years. We don't know the intent of the gift because Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details. Yet we can judge from the nature and value of these gifts that they were presented to Jesus because they mattered. Gold stands the test of time as a source of great value. Incense was imported uh, for part of worship uh, to deities. Frankincense was offered to highly esteemed rulers as a sign of respect and goodwill. These gifts were planned as part of their embarkation to their travel to Bethlehem. It's not like they stopped by Walmart on their way to pick up a last-minute gift. They thought carefully. They wanted to bring gifts of value and meaning to this Christ child. Which raises the question for us, we have the opportunity to come into the presence of this Christ child. I wonder what gifts we are presenting. For many, we can resonate with the Magi because we want nothing more than to bring our best gifts to Jesus. For gifts to God, it's the strengths that we have been created within us. We bring our artistic ability, our musical talent, our creative mind, our technical expertise, our nurturing care, our non-anxious presence, our compassion for the marginalized, an analytical mind to improve all things, courage, strength, and faith that we're willing to present. Your best gift is bringing your best self, your best resources, your best qualities, your openness to Jesus' will. You present these gifts on a daily basis through the way that you live your life, the way that you work, the way that you lead your family, the way that you serve this community, the way that you engage this church. And Jesus does not demand or rip from our white-knuckled hands our best gifts. Jesus accepts the gifts that we are willing and eager to present to him. So stop and consider what gifts you are or are not presenting to Jesus. There's this unfortunate underlining narrative of this beautiful story that we can't ignore. It's the narrative that Herod is writing. You see, the honest Christmas story is not very Christmassy. See, Herod becomes so anxious over the Magi after they leave Jerusalem, the priests confirmed that a Messiah was coming, and the scriptures confirmed that it was going to be out of Bethlehem. And verse 13 and beyond confirms that Herod was a paranoid tyrant because he sends an order forth for Bethlehem to be sacked and for every child under the age of two to be taken from their homes and to be killed. The best way to prevent a Messiah from rebelling against your throne is to murder him, I guess, when he's still a child. Christmas narrative ends in Bethlehem as recipients of infant side and the Holy Family fleeing to Egypt. Anxious people choose strange things to fixate on. And Herod would pay no homage to Jesus. He would bring no gift to him. The only gift Herod brought was a gift to himself, a gift to preserve his own kingdom. And I know this might sound harsh for us to consider but will we be like Herod? Will we hold on to our comfortable kingdoms that we've built for ourselves instead of bringing our best self to Jesus? Soothsayers argue that, that the way that we use our time and how we spend our money is an indication of who our God is. And if we're honest, 
Jesus is a threat to our individualized security and comfort. We know that we're going to truly encounter our journey with Jesus. We can't live in our own egocentric kingdoms. So we might not order infant side in Bethlehem. Oftentimes we will take painstaking efforts to preserve what we have earned and what we believe we deserve. There is no best gift for Jesus because we can't give what we want to keep for ourselves. And this might be our time, our passions, our strengths, our resources, our wallets, our availability, our comfort, and our certainty. And as I wrestled with this text, I couldn't help but to ask myself, what Andy-centric gift am I keeping for myself? Uh, this coming year, we're going to celebrate 20 years since some of my favorite movies were released in theaters, and that was Peter Jackson's take on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Here's a fun fact for you. Uh, did you know that uh, the publishers actually picked the name of the last book, The Return of the King, and Tolkien hated it because he said it ruins the end of the story? For three years, in the early 2000s, we were invited into the story of Frodo Baggins and the Fellowship journey to destroy this ring of power and thereby vanquish this dark lord that has overcome the world. When J.R.R. Tolkien penned this narrative, he intentionally developed a parallel character, an antagonist to Frodo, a creature named Gollum. And Gollum once possessed this ring of power. The ring gave Gollum special powers, it prolonged his life, and yet the ring twisted and possessed Gollum, turning him into this villainous creature hell-bent on retaining the ring. Frodo, on the other hand, understood that the ring had to be destroyed. If, if not, the Dark Lord would overcome all of Middle-earth and death and destruction. And these two contrasting characters, uh, their journeys intertwine in the most unlikely of ways because Gollum helps lead Frodo and Sam to the gates of Mordor, the place they need to destroy the ring. And yet in the end, although the characters' desires were set on this one ring, their goals were very different. Gollum was willing to kill and destroy to get what he wanted. And Frodo was willing to lose his own life for this ring to be destroyed. Presented with the gifts of rings, Frodo chose a better path. Presented with the gift of rings, Gollum chose selfishness and a twisted path. And it's this too, the same choice that we have. What's fascinating about the gifts presented to Jesus and to the family is that there was no expectations behind them. There was no invitation to a great baby shower. There was no registry to go by. Yet the Magi gave gifts that mattered. In fact, they mattered more than we can acknowledge. Most biblical scholars have argued that the gifts that were given to them actually funded Mary and Joseph and Jesus as they had to flee in exile when Herod called for the infant side in Bethlehem. You see, God uses the Magi's best gifts to bring about beautiful things. And in turn, God uses our best gifts to bring beautiful things into this world. When we bring our best gifts to God, whether it be the, the gifts of our talents or our strengths or our resources or our availability or our presence or our character, God does something miraculous. God might use our gifts to empower someone else to discover their God-given talents and strengths. God might use our best gifts to practically feed a hungry stomach, give shelter to a cold body, and give rest to the weary. God could use our best gifts to 
to really feed those who are seeking living bread and water, shelter in a safe community, and renewal to their anxious souls. God could use our best gifts to empower others to end human trafficking around the world, equip farmers in third world countries to build sustainable farms for their communities and educate a child who might one day restore their dying community. God can use our best gifts to bring hope, love, mercy, grace, and light into our neighborhood, into Baton Rouge, into this world. But it all begins with us bringing our best gifts to God. We see from the scriptures here just how much God can use the things that we present to God. The Magi understood the magnitude of this moment and the depths of this child. Thus, they will be forever transformed by the presence of Jesus. These were important men. They were either prophets or priests. Uh, they were either sorcerers or noblemen or astrologers of their day. And yet they were transformed by the presence of Christ. And their self-importance, whatever it was that their life was bent on, was forever changed by that divine child. Are we transformed by the presence of Jesus? Again, though we don't physically walk with him, we can't see him or touch him, are we changed by Jesus' presence in our life? As a great Richard Rohr put it, we do not think ourselves into a new way of living. We live ourselves into a new way of thinking. 